thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Happy New Year! And with the new year, there's often a resolution or two to make a new you. But what makes you you and me me? Given that we share 99.9% of our genes with each other, there's a lot of variety in that 0.01%. Is it just our genes? Or is there something else at stake? In this edition of The Naked Scientists, I'm going to be exploring the genetics that makes a person an individual. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. I'm Greer Jackson. When you say the word me, you probably feel pretty clear about what that means. I'm a 5 foot 10, 26 year old who makes radio programmes. I like reading, long walks in the rain and the occasional piña colada. But what actually makes me, me? Physically, I mean. Take my brother, Charlie. Hello. Sickeningly good at all sports he tries, with a six pack that I could suggest he barely deserves. I just think I did a lot, maybe more sports and stuff than you did, you and Scott. Are you accusing us of being lazy and fat? No, I, just, <laughs> I feel like I was, I was forced into playing football and you guys, well, Scott didn't play football for starters and I guess you played a bit of netball. So, um, yeah, I just did more, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but I might be tempted to argue he got the better genes. In comparison to you and Scotty, um, he was uh, very agile. Uh, even from a very early age, he appeared to have a six-pack. So he could climb a doorframe using little fingers and bare feet right to the top at the age of two. You couldn't. (laughs) You could make a daisy chain. Somehow I don't feel like that's as impressive. (laughs) I liked it. (laughs) That's my ma. So Charlie and I, we share the same parents and therefore we must have similar genetics. But yet we're totally different. How did he end up with a six pack? Yet I didn't friend of mine who was the last remaining human physiologist I think at one of the universities in the north of England and a biomolecular guy asked him what he did and he said human physiology and he said my goodness you know human physiology how do you deal with all that variability and of course it's in the acceptance that people vary and in trying to find out what the source of that variability is that you get you gain understanding into why some people survive in cold, in heat, why some people even survive on intensive care and some don't. This is the drive for Professor Mike Tipton's research. At the University of Portsmouth, he's finding out why we vary so much. And believe it or not, it's not to curb my curiosity when it comes to why Charlie has abs. We share the, you know, much the same genetic material, but what parts of that genetic profile are activated and which aren't um, is one source of the variation. And the other is people's experience. So, you know, how much time they've spent in different conditions 
um, you know, and how physiologically and psychologically adapted to those conditions they've become. You've designed some sort of horrific uh, demonstration for me to partake in today. Can you tell me a little bit more about what we're going to be doing? Yeah, well, probably the most dangerous response to an extreme environment that we know is the cold shock response to um, sudden exposure to cold water because generally you lose control of your ability to breath hold. That leads to the aspiration of just the one and a half litres that you need to drown. Um, And so, you know, one of the things that we've been looking at is ways of trying to protect people, not only in terms of technology, clothing, life jackets and things like that, but also physiologically against that response. Now, we know that humans can adapt to altitude, can adapt to heat. There's always been a bit more of a question mark over whether or not they can adapt to cold. Um, and particularly cold water. So what we'll try and do today is see if there's a very short protocol of repeated exposures to cold that can actually improve your chances of being able to control your breathing on exposure to cold water and therefore diminish the chance of drowning. Mike mentions drowning here because when people fall into the water, they gasp, and by gasping, they inhale water. It's part of the fight-or-flight response. You need oxygen to do either. And whilst above ground, this is okay. In fact, it's a good thing. In water, it's why drowning is the third most common form of unintentional death worldwide. Other than to stop this gasp response, the demonstration aims to show how much we all vary. My heart rate reading will be different to others, for instance. But also how adaptable we all are. This is why Mike thinks he doesn't have to do the demo with me, although it's probably not the only reason. No, I I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, some of which you've touched upon. (laughs) Um, But there are um, other reasons as well. One, you know, somebody needs to be monitoring what's going on. Um, In fact, there is a long tradition in extreme environmental medicine and physiology that the people who research in it are are normally their first um, subjects. You know, they test themselves. And so I've done this, um, which is one of the reasons you're doing it now. (laughs) So we're going to look at how quickly I can adapt to these cold water environments by monitoring my heart rate and also how long I can hold my breath. Yeah, very simple. How cold is this water going to be? I think about 15 degrees so that's a little that's about the average seawater temperature um around about this time of the year i was a little nervous to say the least once wired up to the ecg my heart rate had rocketed to 90 beats a minute normally it's around 50 so what we'll ask you to do is we'll switch the shower on We'll ask you to start a breath hold just before we switch it on and then hold your breath as long as you can. Then we'll also have a little look at your um, heart rate and ECG just over that one minute and then we'll warm you up, wait 10 to 15 minutes to get you back to normal and then do the same thing again and we'll look at what happens over five one-minute immersions. No, I don't really want to do it. I'm nowhere near the on the <laughs> Maybe step back a bit, you're right. Think, Here? Okay, back. Are you ready? I'm ready. In five, four, three, two, one. Hold your breath. <laughs> Was that a breath hold? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's quite cold. I feel like I could maybe hold, hold my breath. How long's that been? <laughs> uh, that's been about 30 seconds. Oh. 
<sighs> That's it, like it's no big deal. Just a minute, well done. Brain freeze and slightly shaky. Excellent. So would you, we'll keep you there and we'll put the water to warm and that'll warm you through, then you can come out, have a bit of a rest and we'll, we'll go again. All right, you want to, uh, do we put that straight round to warm? Yeah. It has to go through cold to get to warm up. So, I mean, I timed your... Depends where you want to mark the end of your breath hold, but if it's with the start of speaking, um, it was about two seconds. Yeah. Well, I saw the initial shock. I think I did one of those sort of horsey noises. Actually, do you know what you said? (laughs) Can't use that in the recording. (laughs) It's going to be a... Oh, bleep. Or or maybe voiceover. Oh, damn. But yeah. actually, that's a really common in that fact. That's assures that, that I was normal in my poor language choices. I did four more of those minute-long immersions. Later, over a hot cup of coffee, Mike talked me through the results. So what we've got is the ECG, which was a recording of your heart, and we've got a respiratory trace as well, so we can get the breath hold time. And what that's if we look at number, the first one, of course, what we can see is that, um, unsurprisingly, you were quite excited about the prospect. And I'd go for nervous, not excited. <laughs> yes. Well, your, your heart rate was quite raised. You um, managed a breath hold time of about two seconds on your first one, and we can see exactly where that finished here because there's quite a lot of movement on the ECG trace that equates to the expletive that you offered us at that time but uh, anyway it's interesting so there's a big respiratory drive that's come from going under the cold shower that's prevented you from holding your breath Um, interestingly on the second one your heart rate was higher of course once you've done it once you're just a little bit more anxious the second time and the response is greater so going through three four and five your breath hold times went from um, 16 on number three to 44 seconds on number four and 45 seconds on number five, which suggests to me that you'd almost you know, reached the level at which you were not going to habituate anymore. Your heart rate response kind of supports that. That tends to follow a different pattern in that it stays high and then suddenly drops. So you're 125 on the first, 150 on the second, 65, 62, 56. Now that's, I mean, 56 is a remarkably low heart rate, so congratulations on that. But it does also tell us that you've probably habituated as much as you're going to do. So that five immersions was enough to reduce that response. What's going on for me to adapt to that environment in my body? Well, we think the adaptation occurs somewhere central to the peripheral cold receptors. Because we see a a difference in the profile of the heart rate habituation and the respiratory habituation, it's, it's, it's probably happening beyond that point as well. The other thing that kind of suggests that is that if we do a full habituation to cold we can reduce the cold shock response by about 50 percent we then ask people to come back 14 months later and it's still reduced by 25 percent so it's a fair fairly permanent alteration in the neurophysiological response to a peripheral cold stimulus because interestingly enough i felt much much better by the fifth or by the fourth and fifth one it wasn't as uncomfortable um and i felt much more relaxed actually so surely Psychology has something to, some role to play in this. It definitely does. In fact, when we look at the two variables that we examined today, heart rate and um, ability to breath hold, well, heart rate is 
in normal circumstances, not under very much conscious control. But, of course, breath-holding is. You've got a drive coming from those skin receptors, uh, which you're trying to suppress. And so part of what's going on is you're getting better at suppressing that drive, as well as the drive going um, down as well. And we, we, we know that there is a sort of psychophysiological component. But also, you can sensitise people. Um, they get a little bit anxious. So there is a well-known presenter um, who has come and been immersed with us. And I always start an immersion in cold water by counting down from five, as I did today. And now if I see this person on the street, I only have to count down from five, and I think his heart rate doubles. So we've, we've kind of sensitised him. And so, yeah, absolutely, this is not just a physiological adaptation. It's an interwoven physiological and psychological adaptation. So if we put this in the greater context, the ability for that adaptation is a combination of your genetic profile, which will d- determines other things like fitness, um, you know, fitness, fatness, uh, and also your exper- experience of exposure to the environment. So everybody has the ability to adapt. That, uh, that adaptation is limited compared to what we can do intellectually, and is also determined by a combination of the environmental exposure that you've had and the genetic basis of you as an individual. There's quite a few things at play then when it comes to what makes you you and me me. There's the environment, your genes, your lifestyle even. But how much do they all interact and is there a dominant force or factor in all this? To understand, I needed to get a better handle on how our genes work, because words like DNA and chromosome and gene, they all just get banded around a lot, and at least to me, the meanings begin to blur. So, DNA. It's a molecule, a bunch of atoms stuck together, and in the case of DNA, it's in the form of a long, spiralling ladder. That's if you stretch it out. In real life, it's actually tightly wound up and sandwiched between structuring proteins to form a chromosome. This recipe for life is in each and every one of our cells. A gene is just a section of the recipe, an instruction like peel the potatoes or dice the onions. And just like those words can be broken down into individual letters, so peel being P-E-E-L, Genes, too, are made up of a sequence of four letters, or bases, which scientists call... And A pairs with T and G goes with C. A different sequence of bases would make a different gene, just like how a different sequence of letters would make up a different word. Humans have roughly 20,000 genes, and these genes code for certain proteins. You may have heard of haemoglobin. This is a protein found in red blood cells and helps to transport oxygen around the body. These proteins mix together with other chemicals in the body to build things like eye colour or freckles, or indeed, whether you're a tenor... Or a bass... Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight, come and me won't go home. 6.37, 28.5 punch. Daylight, come and me won't go home. 
Top banana, what a beautiful bunch. Daylight come and we won't go home. Pretty cool, hey? Thanks to the Barbershop Quartet, Bald Zone, for helping me out. They were singing an old Jamaican folk song called The Banana Boat. Do you know how many genes you share with banana? Go on, have a guess. It's 50%. You share half your genes with banana. Pretty mind-blowing stuff. Coming up on the programme, are we still evolving? And if so, could we evolve superhuman traits? But before that, I have another conundrum for you. If you get a combination of your parents' genes, what determines what traits you get from which parent? This comes back to the whole idea that Charlie got all the fitness genes, apparently. UCL's Professor Hugh Montgomery. Well, fairly straightforwardly, you've got your genes. You probably know roughly 20,000 genes is what you've got. And it's that common inheritance of 20,000 genes that are pretty much the same that makes you a human being. That's what determines your species. But you inherit half of those genes from your mum and half of them from your dad. And what determines the way you are is the combination of those genes that you've inherited, the gene variants in them, and the environment you expose them to. And that's why you're different from your brother, or indeed different from any human who's ever lived before or who will ever live in the future. When you say gene variants, what do you mean? Well, there are subtle variations in that sequence that mean that those genes differ very slightly. Now, some of those variants don't do anything functional at all, but some of those little changes are in areas that regulate the way the gene is expressed. So you could imagine that as being a slightly twitchier brake or accelerator pedal in the bits that control the gene. So those gene variants can make no difference, or they can make quite big differences. Uh, And those variants come in different flavours. There are big differences where you can have an extra bit of a chromosome tacked on the bottom end. Or you could have a bit missing, which is called deletion variants. Or you can have copying errors, where pretty much an entire block of a gene has been copied several times, so you end up with repeat sequences. So lots of ways in which it can vary. Not much of it's variable, though. You are very, very similar to other human beings in your genetics, but you are very different in who you are. This is quite a staggering thought. We share almost all our genes with one another, yet we're totally different. So your environment must be a pretty important factor in shaping you. Just how much, though? The rest of its environment, and as a rough rule of thumb, and it is rough, you could say that roughly 30% of the variation in any particular trait, any particular way you are, will be down to the genes you've got. And sometimes it's a lot more. So if you look, for instance, at how fat teenagers are, 13, 14-year-olds, oddly enough, more than 70% of the variation in that is due to genes. And that applies to everything. It applies to whether you drink alcohol, and if so, how much, uh, how tall you'll grow, how fast you'll run. So if you think of the alcohol thing, yes, strong genetic traits to whether you choose to drink, and if so, how much but a very, very strong environmental stimulus. If you're in a country where you cannot buy alcohol, then you can't drink any. And if it's priced to a point where it's massively expensive, alcohol consumption will be low. And that's an environmental factor interacting with the genetics you've inherited that predisposes you to choosing to drink. 
hmm, my brother and I, we grew up together and experienced the same environmental pressures. So does that mean Charlie has a six-pack gene? Is there even such a thing? As it turns out, there are actually very few fitness genes that we know of. If you don't know where to look, it's a needle in a haystack. There are probably another three or four for which there is solid evidence. There are good data to say it's influential. You discovered the first fitness gene, the ACE gene. Hmm. wonder whether you can just unpick what that is and actually how you discovered it. Because you've already mentioned there's 20,000 genes. Hmm. How did you just identify that one gene as being really key in your fitness ability? Well, I suppose it's probably fair to say we found that to a degree by chance. There are many ways in which you can try to identify the relationship of one gene or gene variant with a physical trait. We took what's known as a candidate gene approach, so it's where you have a suspicion that a gene or a gene variant is doing something, and then you look to see whether it is. Now, in this particular case, this gene called ACE, which encodes something called angiotensin-converting enzyme, that's why it's known as ACE, and we wanted to know whether this gene and its product ACE regulated heart growth in humans. So I asked the army if I could ultrasound scan the hearts of army recruits at the start of training and at the end of 10 weeks of training, um, if we could relate the size of their heart to the gene they carried. So in principle, exercising makes your heart grow stronger. It's like any muscle. You exercise it, it will grow. In this case, the recruits are all basically the same age and race, and in those days, same sex as well, all men. And they're all undergoing exactly the same physical training, same, and they were eating the same food, drinking the same water. So in this case, we've controlled for the environment. So they're all getting the same environmental drive for the heart to grow. And therefore, pretty much all of the difference in heart growth will be genetic. So we've taken the environmental bit out. And what we found was we were right. Now, remember how you talked about how you have different gene variants and how your genes express themselves differently? Well, in the case of the ACE gene, you could have an extra bit tacked on, on the end, which they call the I variant. Or you could have a bit missing, which is called deletion variant. The deletion variant form of ACE is simply called D. Because you get one gene from your mum and one gene from your dad, you can be DD, II or DI. If you have the DD, you produce more of this muscle-making protein, ACE. The army folk grew bigger hearts, but they actually had to work harder too. If you're II, you may work less hard, but as a result, you're much better at conserving your energy, and thus endurance sports. And what we found is that people with two D versions of genes, hearts grew many, many tens of times more than the people with the two insertion bits, the bits present where they had low expression of this ACE. Now, one of the obvious confounders for that would be to say, well, yeah, Hugh, but that's rubbish, isn't it? It's just that the DD people worked harder and their heart had to work harder to do the same exercise. And we thought, well, it's not true, uh, but we'll look and see. And it turned out that it was true, that to get the same external workout on a bike if you measure how much people were pedaling to get the same external workout the poor old dds were having to do a lot more chemical work and the hearts having to work a lot harder too anyway look cut a very long story short that told us that ace was important with fitness and what we found was that the i version of the gene tracks with endurance performance 
So this is if you're wanting to do something involves fatigue resistance or very long distance running, you want the I version. And if you want to build up strength or do a power sport like swimming or sprinting, then you want the D version. What are you? <laughs> well, I'm interesting. I'm, I'm a DD. Um, I, I should put a caveat on this. I, I'm. It, this is a very personal view. I don't think it's a good idea to be genetically tested. But as it was back in the day, I did run mine for experimental reasons, and I know that I'm a DD. That fits with my sporting history. I was a sort of strong swimmer, so all of that tracks well with that genotype. The bit that doesn't is mountaineering. Mountaineering is very strongly skewed towards IIs, um, DDs. There aren't many amongst elite mountaineers. Only about 5% of the elite mountaineers we've looked at are DD. I'm not elite. I can certainly get up big mountains, though. And I suppose the point about that is that most things in life aren't down to just one gene variant. There are many gene variants. I'm starting to think everything about my life might be slightly predetermined and I have no choice in where I'm going or what I'm doing. Well, it's certainly true that part of it is. I mean, part of your... You you have not been able to regulate what colour your hair was unless you get a bottle and dye it. Um, you couldn't regulate how tall you chose to grow. You, you, you just grew, didn't you? You ate and you grew. Um, if I told you, if you really, 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 really starve yourself to the point of ridiculous, you will end up a few inches shorter, you might have had some control over it, but beyond that, you wouldn't. So a lot of what you are, you just need to think of some of the things like your behaviours as being like hair colour. They are strongly genetically influenced, but you have some control over them. But how much control do we have over our genes? Well, maybe more than we thought, as Professor Tim Spector from King's College London explained to Connie Orbach. I think genes are overrated, and we have to remember that we have slightly less genes uh, than the worm. So clearly, it's what you do with your genes rather than the number and the, the type of the genes that are important because we like to think we're a bit more sophisticated than the average worm. So my work has really shown that genes are overrated. There is no real such thing as genetic destiny and that um, we've evolved to be much more flexible than people think. Overrated? That seems a little controversial. And everyone says how similar identical twins are. I wanted to look a bit deeper into this, so I thought I'd go to meet a pair that I know really well. Meet my nieces, Flory, Mabel, and their mum, Nimi Orbach. Turns out Maymay's got the same mummy as you, so you got to share. You do. You do. Is Maymay allowed a cuddle from mummy as well? No. Why? I'm doing They're completely two separate people. Their, their reactions to, you know... a a bump, bumping their head, a reaction to the food in the moment. You know, they, they like completely different things. They make completely different choices. They often want the same thing as one another in the way that siblings do. You want what your brother's got, what your sister's got. I, they're definitely twins, but they're definitely, definitely two separate people. And that's amazing, because really at this age, they have spent absolutely every, almost every second of their life together. Pretty much. I think they've been apart. There was one walk where they were taken separately on different walks, and other than that, like, they literally have been, you know, in the same house or... Yeah, they're, they're always together, <laughs> yet completely different. And they were completely different from the moment they were born. And lots of the, the things that we could see as differences between them at the beginning that we kind of didn't want to associate with them at the beginning... 
have stuck a bit you know the the whining and the groaning and I won't tell you which one is more of a whiner than the other one in case she listens when she's older but one whined more than others the other and she still does a little bit it's amazing that they can have had the same experience the same upbringing the same genetics and be so completely undeniably different can't you Flory okay so it seems that there is something in this, and much more than just my two-year-old nieces. Tim has actually spent the past 23 years studying 10,000 pairs of identical and non-identical twins. The last uh, five or six years, I've turned my attention to why uh, identical twins can very often be different. When all of us look at identical twins, we see amazing similarities. But when you scratch beneath the surface, we find that although... There's a general tendency for things to go together. When there's a, a key event like heart disease or type 1 diabetes, the chances are when one twin has it, the other one actually won't have it. So this goes against popular perception where they think identical twins who are essentially clones with 100% of their uh, genes uh, identical in every cell of their body uh, end up having rather different lives, and not only diseases, but also um, more likely than not, if one is gay, the other one is more likely to be straight. Um, if one is um, has extreme political views, the other one may have different political views. So sometimes it looks like this part of our makeup makes us much more flexible than we'd have believed. You're saying some some really quite fundamental differences if we're talking about diseases which we expect to be quite genetic, but also, you know, beliefs. It's not just nature, it's, it's not just nurture, but there's something else going on here. And what, what is that? I think a, another big player here is epigenetics. That is the way in which um, our genes are switched on and off by chemical signals. And these chemical signals um, vary in all of us and can be influenced themselves by genes but also by our environments and by chance and one of the, the the projects we've been looking at for the last five years is how um, what differences between identical twins for any of these traits uh, can be explained by differences in how their genes are epigenetically altered and it, it, it looks promising that some of these changes the differences in identical twins can be explained by these epigenetic switches. We don't yet know they're totally causal or whether they're just passengers at the moment. Can you um, maybe give me an example, take me through what can happen throughout their life to end with uh, very different consequences? Often there was a story of a family trauma that happened when they were young teenagers or kids and they react differently to that trauma. If there was a divorce, one would become uh, take comfort eating, the other would become anorectic. And you'd get then a, a chain reaction after that because both two of them would, would, in effect, alter their genes because of that and, in a way, would always be different after that point. Time after time, twin studies have shown that twins will react differently to the same environment, which is kind of weird, but it might be a, a, an evolutionary idea that uh, to keep us more variable, can, you know, keep us less predictable as a race and transfer in a way, different um, genes onto the next group of people so that 
our predictability has perhaps been linked to our survival and the way we have escaped predators and uh, might explain some of our quirkiness as in the human race. When you mentioned epigenetics, we're talking about uh, lifestyle and life events kind of influence being back on your genes. Is that something that you can pass on to the next generation? You certainly can in animals. Laboratory animals have shown that um, some, for example, anxious experiences or stress can be passed on to the next generation, even if those that generation wasn't stressed. And there's epidemiological evidence that uh, you can pass on some of these experiences on to your grandchildren. But the data isn't great in humans, but I think there's increasing awareness that this is a phenomenon that does occur in nature, so that the offspring are perhaps better adapted to a different environment than the one the mother had. And what we don't yet know is how important this is in humans. So I guess Floria and Mabel may only get more different as time goes on and they start to make their own life decisions. Maybe the saying's right, and variety really is the spice of life. Where's Mabel gone? Where's Mabel gone? <laughs> Mabel! Hey, Flurry, where's Mabel gone? <laughs> so, Connie, you're here with me now. Your twin nieces are absolutely adorable, by the way. That's really quite a staggering thought, that what I'm doing now might affect my genes enough that my kids might feel those effects also. I know, it really changes what you think about just general everyday decisions, you know. So often you think, hey, I can do whatever I want, I'm young, I can smoke some cigarettes, I can go out and drink. But then when you actually think about what that might mean down the generations, maybe we're all going to just become really sensible and maybe a bit boring. (laughs) Do you really think it's going to change how you view things and how you do things? Perhaps you won't I don't know, perhaps you might encourage yourself to go on that run or not have that extra drink. I mean, often it's so hard to envisualise something that's so far away and so far in the future. I mean, for me anyway, when I'm thinking about having children. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. I think the situation we're in with climate change shows that as much as anything else. Maybe I think, (laughs) maybe I say I'm going to be more responsible, but probably, no, probably it's not going to happen. What makes me me and you you? This is a question the naked... Synthetic biology is is a very interesting phenomenon. It's very much grassroots based. There's this large community of very enthusiastic participants. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we return to the world of synthetic biology, discovering some of the ways this revolutionary technology might change the world. Plus, a genetic test to reveal flu risk and a twisted gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. Scientists have been tackling today. It sent me, Greer Jackson, on some interesting escapades. I've been dunked in cold water, sung myself through DNA, and Connie's been looking at twins to unpick just how genetically similar we are, or dissimilar they are. But what's next for us? Will we ever stop evolving? And come to think of it, how do we evolve in the first place? Hello, I am here... Simon Collier. Okay, if you sign in, and your name is Greer Jackson. Greer. Jackson Greer. Uh, Jackson. Greer Jackson. This is a common problem when you have an unusual name. Anyway, what drew me initially to Cambridge University's Fly Lab was to learn about how we measure evolution. Flies are often used to model humans when it comes to this sort of stuff. But when I arrived, I was completely overwhelmed by Fly Lab manager's Simon Collier's office. 
There was fly memorabilia everywhere, and I mean everywhere. Mugs with flies on, massive models of flies, photographs of flies. Even Simon's desktop background was, yes, you guessed it, a fly. I totally loved it. Uh, yes, we, we definitely have a fly theme. I've worked with flies now for 20 to 25 years, and through the places I've been, I've accumulated a number of sort of fly souvenirs that my students like to give me little gifts of uh, model flies or pictures of flies that they've drawn and they sort of surround us right now they are great i really like them i feel like i've seen more of a fly than i've ever considered before yeah and and people don't really look closely at these animals i mean we just have them buzzing around and mostly we think they're a nuisance but uh, they are really quite spectacular when you when you get up close and 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 see what they're really made of Okay, back to science. To see what flies are really made of, Simon and I took flight to the fly lab. So we're now standing inside the uh, main fly lab and we are surrounded by uh, benches which have microscopes on. And this is where fly people work. So I don't know quite what I expected, but I think when I came here I did actually expect more of a pet shop. But actually you're right, it's just desk after desk after microscope after microscope. Um, Yeah, so out here it does look just like a lot of microscopes, but if we walk over here into one of the constant temperature rooms and we'll see it looks quite different. Oh, it's like a sauna in here. It's, It's nice and humid. Actually, I'd say more steam room than sauna. Yeah, we keep this at high humidity and the temperature is about 25 degrees centigrade, which is a warm summer day. Tropical and... There are rows after rows of little test tubes filled with flies. Yeah, so you can have a look. Well, this is not an idea. Um, Oh, they're all jumping around. At the bottom of each tube, you can see something that looks green, and that's the food. The food is very simple. It's really just cornmeal, sugar, uh, and yeast. Very cheap, too. And if you leave the flies in that tube... You can essentially just walk away. So it reminds me of a little essay I wrote when I was very young. I was about seven years old, where I write about what the perfect pet is. Mm -hmm. And uh, I write it's a snail because, you know, they don't need much looking after. And um, you can go on holiday and not have to worry about it. And they don't need much food. And afterwards, when you get bored, you can eat it. And what strikes me about these is these are also very low maintenance, although you probably don't want to eat them. <laughs> well, we do. Well, I mean, I'm sure we occasionally eat them by mistake. Cycle right uh, to work. <laughs> there are so many around. But um, yes, and, and they are low maintenance. And I think when you do the sums, we can accommodate, I, I believe, 60,000 of these tubes in these, in these four rooms. So if you can accommodate 60,000 tubes, there must be, what, 30, 40 flies in one of these tubes? That's... Yeah, probably several hundred, actually, flies in each of those tubes. So you can do the maths and work out just how many flies we can have here and I don't trust my maths (laughs) (laughs) well as long as they're contained although I do feel a bit itchy so these are all obviously various experiments going on what sort of things will they be looking for and doing with them a whole variety of things but I mean the fruit fly is used as a standard model uh, for biomedical research and what I mean by that is we use the fly as a model so we can understand some general processes which apply to us as much as to the fruit fly. One fly fan is Sam Lewis, a postdoctoral researcher at Cambridge who works on evolution and genetics. Well these are 
fruit flies, which are one of the main model organisms that we use to study evolution. So if you look at them down a microscope, what do you, what do you see? Well, one of the easiest things to see is the difference between males and females. Females have a very white abdomen, and the males are a bit slimmer and have a kind of black bum, basically. And I assume when you're looking at them, you don't look at them down a microscope and see their, their DNA. So how do you then go from fly to looking at its DNA? Unfortunately for the flies, the first step is to grind them up. Um, <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> <laughs> then you can extract their DNA, and then you can work out the sequence of A's, C's, G's and T's that make up a certain gene. Why are flies so good to use as models when you come to look at genetics and evolution? Well, it's the combination, really, of the amount that we know about most of the genes that they have, but also the amount that you can manipulate them to find out more about those genes. So you can do a lot of different experiments, putting them on different diets or under different temperatures, and then you can look and see how that changes their genetic makeup and how that might then be triggering evolution. How would you look at that? How would you determine whether a fly has evolved or not? There are two possible approaches, or a number of possible approaches, but two main ones are either comparing the genetic makeup of flies from different habitats and seeing if there are differences in the genes that might help them respond to those habitats. Or you could take flies that you know the genetic makeup of at the beginning of an experiment, split them into different regimes. So maybe one in a hot environment, one in a cold environment, and then evolve them under that selective regime for a number of generations, and then look at time points through the experiment to see how their genes are changing. And there, given that this is the only difference between them, you get a good idea of how they're responding to that change. So say a fly's been put in a progressively, or generations of flies are put in progressively warmer and warmer environments, how quickly would a fly evolve to be more comfortable, let's say, in a warmer environment? Is it within a few generations? Usually it's slower than that, but given the precision that you can measure these things at, you can pick up changes that occur in dozens of generations Um, And then you can get to really large effects by just looking at a few hundreds of generations, which obviously would be a lot harder to do in humans. um, But in flies, that's not all that long. Yeah, I was going to say, a dozen generations to see some changes and then, say, a few hundred for quite large changes. That seems remarkably fast. Is that comparable in humans? I don't think we really know without doing those kind of experiments it would be very difficult to say how quickly you could have seen it if you were looking a bit earlier I suppose the difficulty is is that we have not been taking uh, people's looking at people's <laughs> genomes for you know the last dozen generations let alone hundreds of generations yes. uh, we're just not that easy to study <laughs> unlike the fruit fly yeah. and I suppose also the other thing is at least in a fruit fly you can just expose it to a warmer environment or a colder environment whereas well, I'm not sure any human being would be very happy with that, that sort of condition. But there are so many things interacting and going on with humans that 
it's really hard to pinpoint what's changing where. Yes, exactly. And one of the hardest things, I think, about inferring human evolution is kind of with humans and with moving populations and intermixing of different genes, it makes it a lot harder to say for certain when a change occurred or even if that change is causing the effect that you think it is. But I suppose that doesn't mean that we're not evolving. We just might not be able to tell how we're evolving. Yes. There are some examples where there are kind of relatively clear changes that correlate with alterations in diet, for example, in humans. So a gene called amylase breaks down starch, and if you look at populations which have a high starch diet, they have more copies of the amylase gene, so they would have more amylase protein, than populations with a low starch diet. And that's been acted on by natural selection to allow humans to break down starch. I'm thinking of potato farmers in Peru. Yes. <laughs> High starch diet. There is starch in potatoes, isn't there? <laughs> yes. I'm not even sure which populations they looked at exactly. Yeah, quite. Well, probably my mum as well and myself are big potato eaters, so <laughs> yeah. we probably have that starch gene as well. So does that mean we are still evolving? It's probably very difficult to say we are still evolving currently, but it would be very surprising if we weren't. And we certainly have been up until very recently when we last looked. <laughs> last looked? When did we last look? <laughs> well, in the last few generations. <laughs> Looks aside, will there ever be a point when we stop evolving? There might be a clue when we look at horses. For years, scientists thought that racehorses had reached their selection limit. And what I mean by this is that they've been bred and bred and bred, the fastest stud paired with the fastest mare but we just can't make them any faster. OK, so we've been measuring racehorse times for hundreds of years. And over the last couple of decades, the very best horses have really been doing the same sorts of times, the same sort of distances. And we've been thinking that really they're not getting much better, despite all the efforts in, in breeding and, and training that have been put in. That's Dr Jim Usherwood from the Royal Veterinary College. There is a caveat here, though. For thoroughbreds, there isn't a big enough gene pool, or you might say, not enough top dogs to mate with. Here we're talking about thoroughbred racehorses, and this is thoroughbred with a capital T, which declares a, a breed. And the rules for being allowed to race in these races are fairly strict and constrain your, your breeding uh, really quite strongly. However, a publication earlier this year suggested that actually we may have had it all wrong. So there's this interesting, fairly recent study that show that in elite short distance races, time is getting a bit better. They, they agree that, that the winners of the elite races at medium and long distances aren't changing much. But in the shorter distances, they do appear to be getting better. Why might this be the case? Why might they be stopping short at the mid to long distances, but getting faster at the short distances? The authors of the extra report suggest that there could have been a new influx of, of genes coming in from America. Where I say new, they're still thoroughbreds. But no, it can't be apparent from, from that kind of measurement, whether it is genes or training. Uh, both could have accounted for a change there. Hmm. So horses 
haven't appeared at least reached their selection limit, do you think we'll ever get to a point where they will? So you can't infer from times whether it's selection limits or whether training is changing, of course. Do I think that they might reach some genetic limit? I I just feel as though the uh, limited genetic pool will probably constrain things to a certain extent. Obviously, with horses, we're choosing which horses to breed with which. But I suppose when you're taking into account humans, that's a very different matter. Would you ever consider humans to reach perhaps a selection limit? When you're thinking about humans, of course, the genetic diversity is, is huge. Uh, we, we, we don't have a, a jockey club or a, a greyhound board saying only these sorts of humans can race. So we, we, we do have some diversity to work with. Because there's so many of us and we're all intermingling with each other all the time, there are a huge number of genes floating around, unlike the world of thoroughbred horses. But is there a limit on what we could achieve? Will we continue to run the 100 metres faster and faster, or will we just level off? I think every time we boldly write down what this limit is, the fun of athletics is uh, we tend to be wrong and demonstrably so. <laughs> Before you saying bolts, we were, we were not saying that the, those times are going to be broken. Put it this way, something as fundamental as why we get tired as when we run isn't well understood. We can observe that we do, but why do you get so much more tired running than cycling? And if you can't do something as simple as that, then... I doubt any guess at what um, estimates of top speed. One thing that springs to my mind is I'm thinking of all the sort of drugs, but also the, all the technical advances we've had in, say, shoes or what have you. Surely we'll just engineer stuff to meet our needs, to make us faster. So that's one of the odd things about sport. They go about putting some pretty arbitrary constraints on what you're allowed to change. You could say shoes, you should be getting faster and faster shoes. Yes, faster shoes have been invented and then banned. You can think of brush spikes. Or you can think of the Fosbury flop was allowed, but a somersaulting long jump isn't allowed. So it depends on what the sport's going to allow as to how much you're going to allow technology or or technique to radically change things. Would a simple solution just not to be, hey, let's have two different Olympic races. Let's have one with all the technology we can possibly get to see how fast we can get versus a sort of more standard approach, I suppose, what we what we do today. Uh, and there you're touching on, on the ideas that, that motorsports got. Do we, do we allow the technology to be uh, part of the sport? And sport doesn't have a, a consistent answer to that. Uh, cycling is an interesting one where the Tour de France put constraints on, on bike desi- design to keep it fairly even, keep it fairly consistent across the years. The Tour de France bikes are by no means the best bicycles that we could design, but it's losing some of the fun of the change you could could make. I, I, I'm torn between the two. Should it just be a, a, a pure measurement of what humans can do? Maybe. I, I, I do quite like technology, actually. I think in my eyes, I think I'd quite like to see a change to see just what we could achieve if we were allowed to. Are you interested in how humans can change, how our muscles and our biomechanics can change? Or are you interested in how well you can make a pole vaulting pole? Of course, a better pole vaulting pole allows you to jump higher. At some point, you don't want one that pings somebody so high that they they get really, really hurt. You could imagine weird prosthetics that allow you to run really fast. But it means that you could really hurt yourself if you go around the corner the wrong way. 
So the, the, there are bits where you want to keep people safe. And you've got the question of, do you want to measure technology or, or, or humans? And athletics tends to be uh, focused on the humans. I'm still quite taken with the idea of having a Super Olympics. But Jim does have a point there. Where would you draw the line, especially when these Olympians might be putting themselves at risk? Here on The Naked Scientists, I've been searching far and wide to discover why my brother has a six-pack, and I don't. But whatever way you look at it, the overwhelming message I've taken away is that it's not all down to your genes, although having a good hand is pretty helpful, as Professor Hugh Montgomery so eloquently put. It's not that I'm any way a, a super athlete at all. I got stuck in a medical series of jobs where there was no time for doing anything except turn up to work and all the rest of it and I had a a surgical colleague a heart surgeon who moved in with me at the time he was a great rock climber from his day and a martial artist and we spent a lot of time shooting the breeze about how super fit we were and you know all the rest of it and then one day we decided to go down the gym and we both lasted I was out first I think after about four minutes vomiting violently and he was not far behind me so I started training again then I suppose about 30 and I haven't stopped since because I never ever want to go back to to vomiting from really quite modest exercise but yes and that matters to health obviously this is like a poker hand with 20,000 cards being dealt to you and you could get dealt the winning hand but you still have to play them well so if you're going to be a world champion you could be dealt the Beckham hand he's no question that he will have been dealt a really really unusual hand of cards genetically but if he hadn't done anything, he would never have got there. And that's where environment's really important and public policy is important. You know, if you don't put football pitches freely available to young boys or girls or hockey pitches or anything else, you don't let people get free and open access to these things, they will never fulfil their potential. And the same would apply to intelligence and schooling and all those things. We've got to let people reach their potential. And that's an environmental thing. That's the thing we can control. You know, if you've been dealt a bad fist of genes that predispose you strongly to coronary disease, then the coronary disease will probably get you. But you can substantially offset that risk by things like exercise, which will help mitigate the risk. So lots of reasons for playing the hand you've been dealt as best you possibly can. It's time to fess up then and admit, although Charlie may have been dealt a good hand, there's no reason why I can't beat him with an excellent poker face and immaculate card-laying technique. And that means exercising. But there's no point spending hours and hours doing things you hate. So it's probably a good idea to find something that you love or makes you forget you're doing exercise. I, I might not have said this 10 years ago, but where I stand today looking at the park run, then I realise that the running aspect of park run is probably one of the least important aspects of park run. Park run is something that's taken the world by storm. It's a simple concept. 9am on a Saturday, hundreds of people meet up for a five kilometre run. It started in Bushy Park, just outside of London, which is why you can hear parakeets galore in the background of this interview. But as founder of Parkrun, Paul Sinton Hewitt said, it's not really about the running. What we do really, really well and what is of vital importance is this community that supports people on the fringes of society to find friends, to find help, to be integrated into society and to improve their own well-being. 
Because what's really striking to me is that obviously you have this fantastic community going on where everyone, people on the fringes, as you said, get to meet other people. But also there is this fantastic benefit that actually hundreds of thousands of people are doing exercise every Saturday, which they might not have otherwise done. That's absolutely correct. And it's not something that we really focused on in the past, but right now... 2 million people registered and uh, 1.4 million of those have participated. 100,000 people taking part every single week. You've sparked a bit of a global running revolution then, haven't you? We call it a movement. It's, um, a revolution's probably a bit strong. Everybody can run. Anyone who can walk can run. And what Parkrun does is it focuses, it's achievable for everybody. And we just make it fun. And that way... I think we are changing people's behaviours. What I'm going to be taking away from this is that genetics can play a role in our abilities. There's no doubt about that. But also how training a lifestyle can significantly affect those abilities. But most importantly, our quality of life. You might die at the same age, but actually you're more likely to live those 80-odd years fit and healthy rather than as a bit aged and decrepit. So as the new year dawns, whether it's at the gym, in the park or on the dance floor, I'll be keeping fit and having fun in the hope of a new me for 2016. Perhaps even with a six-pack to rival my brother Charlie's. Yeah, I don't see why not. <laughs> You're too nice. I totally thought you were going to be like, yeah, right. No, I think you, uh, it'll be, you could easily. A huge thank you to Mike Shattuck, who throughout has provided a lot of the brains behind the broadcast. And also to everyone else who took part in the programme. That's Mike Tipton, Hugh Montgomery, Tim Spector, Nimi Allback and the twins. Simon Collier, Sam Lewis, Jim Usherwood and Paul Sinton Hewitt. And let's not forget the choir bald zone. Next week, we'll be taking on your questions. So if you have any about this programme, genetics or anything else related, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or find us on Facebook. Come, Mr Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight, come and we wander home. Come, Mr Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight, come and we wander home. Six foot, seven foot, eight foot bunch. Daylight come and me one go home. Top banana, what a beautiful bunch. Daylight come and me one go home. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I've been Greer Jackson and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.